always good to be together to worship the Lord in this expression of the body of Christ, isn't it? And it was actually my privilege last week to be here, though I wasn't preaching, and to listen to Pastor Michael Eastman open the word. And I think I took three pages of notes from that message. I just wanted to say to him, I greatly appreciate the word that you spoke last week from Acts. It was very edifying, very encouraging, and I just appreciate that you have it on your heart to teach the word. I thought it was a wonderful, wonderful message. My wife and I talked about it on the way home a bit, and so thank you for doing that. I look forward to the next time that I can sit and listen as you open the scriptures for us. So with that, let's pray together, and then we're going to continue our study in 1 John. So join with me, and let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that we can just be here. We thank you that you've graced us to live in a nation, in a state, in a county, in a city, where we can come together and worship you freely, publicly, openly, even blatantly proclaim your name if we want to. And we're not going to be persecuted or killed because we're Christians. And so we just ask that as we have come together, that you would give us grace to give you thanks for the freedoms that we enjoy. And we pray that you would continue to give us freedom to worship you freely and to proclaim your word freely whether in your churches or out on the streets or in the places where we work, it's such a great privilege to be free to communicate the gospel to others, to communicate the message that Pastor Darren communicated to us from the platform earlier, that Jesus came for the broken, for the weak, for the struggling, for those trapped in the darkness of sin. And he came to offer himself so that we could have the free gift of salvation. And what a great gift it is. Because it tells us that it's not by our works of righteousness that we please you, but it's through your mercy that you save us, and that mercy was manifested and your love was shown when your son Jesus Christ went for us to the cross. Father, help us always rest in that great truth. And especially during this Christmas season, when Christmas songs are being played in public places and some of those songs are proclaiming the gospel, help us to use those opportunities to talk about Jesus and then fill us with thanksgiving that in Christ we can celebrate from the bottom of our hearts what you've done. Now, Father, we're turning our heart to your word. We pray that you would take these verses that we're going to look at today and Feed our souls. It truly is food for the soul. And we ask that you would build all of us up that are Christians in our faith. And we pray for those that might not be Christians, um, that you would cause something from the song, something from the message to speak to them so that they would understand that they're not Christians, that they're not all right with you, and that this might be the day that they surrender their lives to you through faith in Jesus Christ. Finally, give me grace to teach. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So if you've got a copy of the Bible, hard copy or electronic, I'm going to ask you to open to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, so open there or scroll there. And we're going to continue the message we started two weeks ago. Um, two Sundays ago, I actually began our time in 1 John 1 verse 9 through chapter 2 verse 2 with a saying from a pastor from many years ago because I felt that it was a fitting opening to the truths taught in 1 John chapter 1 verse 9 through chapter 2 verse 2. And so I want to begin there again today and then move forward. Uh, the statement which I read in a book by John Flavel went like this, and it comes in two parts. And so hear what this pastor of old wrote. He observed, and I quote, the heart of man is his worst part before it be regenerate, that is, before it be converted to Christ. The heart of man is his worst part before it be regenerate and his best part afterwards. It is the seed of principles and the fountain of actions. The eye of God is and the eye of the Christian ought to be principally fixed upon it. And if we're familiar with Jesus' teachings, we know that this statement by John Flavel is actually um, true. Jesus' teachings reflect these very things. For example, if you were to look at John, or Luke rather, chapter 6, verse 45, you would read Jesus as saying, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good, and an evil man brings forth evil things. And in that same verse, John, uh, Luke 6, 45, uh, Jesus went on to say, from the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. If you want to know the content of a person's life, listen to what comes out of their mouths. That's what Jesus was saying. Jesus is the one that spoke that. And then in Matthew chapter 15, 19, Jesus said, out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder and adultery and fornications and thefts, false testimony, slander, and so forth and so on. And so Flavel's statement was accurate. It was rooted in scripture. And it's important for us as Christians to take heed to our hearts and the little book of 1 John helps us do this. It helps us do this. Um, but Flavel didn't stop with that observation. He continued like this. Now listen to this. The greatest difficulty in conversion is to win the heart to God. And the greatest difficulty after conversion is to keep the heart with God. You follow that? The greatest difficulty in conversion is to win the heart to God. And the greatest difficulty after conversion is to keep the heart with God. Here is what makes the way of life a narrow way and the gate to heaven a narrow gate. Pretty interesting statement. Do you remember that quote? If you were here two weeks ago, I read it. And I've read it again. Um, and from there, I then ask a question. And the question that I asked two weeks ago was this. How do Christians go about keeping their hearts with God? How, after we've come to Christ, do we go about keeping our hearts with God? Or I could put that same question another way. I could ask, how does a Christian live their faith out in such a way so as to keep their heart focused on God 
and maintain assurance that they are gods, that they are truly Christians. If you were here two weeks ago, you might remember me talking about that. And then I went on to say that we learned that John actually answers these questions for us. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 through chapter 2, verse 2. He answers these, this question for us because in these verses, John teaches us three practices which aid us in keeping our hearts with God. And as we keep our hearts with God, then the assurance of our salvation will be ongoing. And I gave you the three practices. Anybody remember what they were? Three words. I do that often. That's right. Confess, resist, and rest. That's awesome. Confess, resist, and rest. Confess, resist, and rest. Confess is in chapter 1, verse 9. Resist is in chapter 2, verse 1. And rest is in chapter 2, verse 2. That's the bottom line. And so, if you are a Christian and you want to keep your heart with God and grow in assurance of salvation, it's important to develop the habit and the practice in these three areas. And the first practice, which I went into in some detail week before last, is the practice of confession of sin. And we talked about that. So why is that important? Because although our sins have been forgiven in whole at the cross when Jesus died, and if you are a believer this morning, if you've been born again by God's Spirit, if you belong to Christ, that is true of you. Jesus has paid the penalty for your sins. Your sins, not in part, but the whole, were nailed to the cross, and you don't bear them anymore. Even though that's true, yet when we do sin, it affects a couple of things. It affects our fellowship with God. In the same way that when a child does something wrong, it doesn't change their relationship with their parents, but it affects their fellowship with their parents until that wrong thing's made right. That's the way that it is with God our Father. When we do sin, it doesn't affect our relationship with the Father. It does affect our fellowship with Him. And it also affects our communion with each other if the sin is of a certain nature. And if we persist in a sin pattern, the sin actually steals something. The sin steals our assurance that we belong to Christ. And so as believers, even though we don't bear our sins anymore, because Christ paid the penalty for them, and that penalty's been paid for, it's important to develop a habit and a practice of confessing, confessing sin. And that's what's in 1 John 1.9. That's why it's therefore important that if we as Christians confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Um, it is therefore important truth to take to heart. And so I could say it this way, confession is good for the soul. It is good for marriage. It is good for family. It is good for the church. It's good for our relationships wherever we might be found, right? Confession is good for our soul, and it's really, really good for our walk with God. We covered that in a lot of detail. I went into confession of sin in some depth with you two weeks ago. 
So I'm not going to get into that anymore. I just wanted to say that as review. But let's consider the second practice John teaches us. Do you remember the second word? First is confess. The second is resist. I got that from chapter 2, verse 1. John went on to write these words. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. If the first practice Christians should practice if they want to keep their hearts with God and have ongoing assurance of salvation is confession, the second practice is resist or resistance. And so I would say it like this. If you are a Christian today and you want to keep your heart with God and maintain assurance of your salvation, you must resist sin. You must resist sin. Sin is always trying to pull us back into the old patterns that we lived in before we became Christians. And so we must resist sin. And John calls us to resist sin in such a way that we don't sin. That's what he says. Let me read it again. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Some versions say it. I write these things to you so that you sin not. That's the new King James. One of the goals of the Christian life should be not sinning. Sin should be seen as an enemy. Before I was born again, sin was my friend. I wanted to hang out with it. And it wanted to hang out with me. And then Christ comes into the life. Christ saved me and suddenly sin is my enemy. And I don't want to hang out with it anymore. But it still wants to hang out with me. And that's the way it is with you too if you're a believer. And so the goal is that we not sin. And to this instruction, I say, wow, that's heavy duty, right? That's heavy duty. It seems like a steep hill to climb, doesn't it? And if you've been a Christian for a short time or a long time, you know that it is a steep hill to climb. And yet, the instruction was given because that is part of the goal of the Christian life. Um, he wrote what he wrote to us so that we would not sin. Now, why would he want Christians not to sin? After all, haven't our sins, not in part but the whole, been nailed to the cross, and we don't bear them anymore? They have. So why is he saying, despite that, you should strive not to sin. After all, haven't we been forgiven completely in Christ? Yes, we have. Absolutely, we have if we're in Christ. So, what's behind this? Why worry? Well, let me give you some insight to the why question. Uh, there are actually a number of reasons John gives us this instruction now, I want to give you a list of about seven reasons why, as Christians, we should resist and fight against sin. Now, this list is not exhaustive. You might be able to come up with a reason I miss. And if you do, that's great. Let me know it. I'll add it. And then if I preach through this text again, I'll have eight reasons instead of just seven. I won't be able to give you an exhaustive list. But John instructs us to not sin for several reasons. Now, here's the first. 
Jesus Christ came to save his people from their sins. That said, when the announcement of Jesus' soon conception was made to Mary, that he would be called Emmanuel, for he will save his people from their sins. So that's part of why Jesus came. He came to save you and me from our sins. So, if when I came to know Christ, I was actually saved from my sins, why do I want to walk continually after that in what he saved me from? That's a logical question. To continue to walk in the sins that Jesus saved me from is to walk in the Lot's wife syndrome. Do you know what I mean by that? So what was happening with Lot and his wife? Well, if you go back into Genesis, you'll read the story of Lot and his wife and his kids and stuff like that. And they lived in a city called Sodom. It's an infamous city. It was known as a wicked, wicked, wicked city. And God came to a place where he could not bear with their sinfulness anymore. And so he came down to investigate And he investigated through the person of two angels. They went into the city, investigated, found out that indeed Sodom was as wicked as they already knew. And they told Lot, listen, you've got to get yourself, your wife, and any of your family members out of this city before tomorrow. Because in the morning, we're going to destroy this place. And Lot took his wife and his daughters because his son-in-laws thought he was mocking And he got out of the city. So we could say this. They were saved from their sins. In a manner of speaking, they were were saved from darkness. They were saved from an evil city. They were saved from absolute total destruction. They were saved from the coming destruction by the judgment of God that rained down fire and brimstone on the city of Sodom and Gomorrah and wiped out the cities of the plains. They were saved from all of that. And they fled, and they're fleeing and fleeing and fleeing. And the angel said to them, hey, when you're fleeing, don't look back. That's why I called it the Lot's wife syndrome. After we're born again by the Spirit of God, to continue to walk in sin purposely is to do what Lot's wife did. She'd been saved from a city of destruction, and she turned and looked back, and she was turned into a pillar of salt. She was turned into a pillar of salt. And for a Christian to continue to walk in what we've been saved from eventually will make us as rigid and whatever as Lot's wife was made. So that's the first reason. Here's the second. Uh, sin is walking, sin and walking in darkness are the same thing, okay? And we talked about this early on in our study of 1 John chapter 1. Sin and walking in darkness are the same thing. God is light. In him is no darkness at all. Uh, if we say we have fellowship in him and yet we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth, that's another way to say that if we continue sinning, we're not practicing the truth either. Uh, and when a person becomes a Christian, guess what happens? They're delivered out of the kingdom of darkness and they're transferred into the kingdom of the Son of God's love. That's the kingdom of Christ. 
Now that's taught in the book of Colossians. And so before I was a Christian, I was in the kingdom of darkness. Before you became a Christian, you were living in the kingdom of darkness. When you became a Christian, God took you out of the dark kingdom and he put you into the light. And so to fail to resist sin, to fail to fight sin, to continue to allow sin to have its way with us means that even though we've been taken out of the kingdom of darkness and placed into Christ's kingdom, um, we're still going back to the darkness, back to the darkness. And to why return to the dark? Why return to the dark? Here's a third reason. God the Father hates sin. God the Father hates sin. God is an absolutely, awesomely holy God, totally pure, totally righteous, totally good, totally just. God killed, was, God saw his highest creation killed by sin. That's what happened to Adam and Eve. Satan tempts them. They sin. It kills them. It brings death on the whole human race. God, the Father, hates sin. Now, we glorify him by not doing what he hates, by resisting what he hates, and by seeing what he hates in the same way he sees it. It says in one of the Proverbs, that the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Why is the fear of the Lord manifested in part by hating evil? Because it's like father, like daughter, or like son. And what the father hates, we grow to hate. That's a third reason to resist and fight against sin and not sin. Here's a fourth reason. Sin is what caused Christ to suffer terribly on a cross. Sin is what caused Christ to suffer terribly on a cross. Take the time sometime to meditate on one of the passion accounts in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. And don't go too fast. Meditate through it. But there's one word that encapsulates a ton of meaning. It's pregnant with meaning And it's so pregnant with meaning that the gospel writers just use the word to describe what happened, and that word is crucified. They took him out and they put him between two thieves and they crucified him. Do you know what that means? If you take the time to do a short study on crucifixion, you'll learn what physical agonies Christ experienced in order to go to the cross to pay the penalty for your sin, for my sin. And physically, it's beyond comprehension. Beyond comprehension. In Isaiah, it actually says that the damage done caused him to look inhuman. But then you have to couple that with the spiritual suffering that Christ experienced When God is heavenly father who he had lived in total harmony with from all eternity forsook him. My God, my God, Psalm 22 says, 
Why have you forsaken me? The father turned his back on the son, the second person of the Trinity, so that the son could pay the penalty for your and my sin. And that's another reason why we should resist and fight sin. Sin is what caused Christ to suffer terribly. Why walk in what caused Christ such suffering? Meditate on that. Think on that. Here's a fifth. Sin always leads to a bad conscience. Sin always leads to a bad conscience. Now listen, when a person comes to know Jesus Christ, one of the immediate benefits of faith in Christ when the Holy Spirit gives new life and we believe is a clean conscience. A clean conscience before God. And we have peace. Because we realize that there's not any more condemnation because Christ died for us and we believed on him. And our sins have been paid for. And we have peace with God because we are declared righteous through faith in Christ. But after that fact, if we walk in sin, it always leads to a bad conscience. And what does that result in? When we have a bad conscience, then we lose our peace. And when we lose our peace, what does that result in? Well, that results in a loss of assurance over time. Because we had peace with God initially, and we knew that we were right with him and he with us, and it makes us right with other people because our lives begin to change, and then we walk in sin and we get a bad conscience, and it begins to bother us. And if we continue in that state, we're going to eventually say, I'm just not sure whether I belong to God anymore. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Often, you know, in counseling, um, when a person is struggling with their relationship with God and the counselor takes the time to take their situation apart and walk them through, what is found very often is that somewhere back here, they got involved in a sin pattern and they've continued to walk in the sin pattern off and on. And so now they've got this contradictory feeling and experience in their souls because it's like, I know that I was right with God back here, but now I just feel so guilty and so unworthy and separated from God here. And I have all these other problems working their way out. And really the problem is they weren't resisting and fighting against sin And as they sinned, they came to have a bad conscience and they tried to suppress it and tried to justify it and things like that. Um, And once the person deals with that sin pattern, the good conscience returns. Does that make sense? So that's another reason to resist sin. Sin always leads to a bad conscience. So why practice that which is going to steal my joy, that's going to steal my peace, that's going to steal my assurance. I don't want to practice that. Here's a sixth reason why we should resist sin. Sin is inconsistent with our identity as Christians. Sin is inconsistent with our identity as Christians. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, if we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Why does he say such a pointed thing? Because it's so true. 
If we say we have fellowship with he who is light, God, and we're walking in darkness, we're lying and we're not practicing the truth. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Uh, Verse 7 is a consistent Christian walk. And so the goal should be live consistently, live compatibly with our identity as Christians. And here's the seventh reason to resist sin. Sin destroys fellowship in the church. Sin destroys fellowship in marriage. Sin destroys fellowship between children and parents and parents and children. Sin destroys fellowship between friends. Sin destroys fellowship and harmony in everything that it touches. It's the most destructive force in the human race. The payment of sin is death. The soul that sins, it shall die. And as Christians, we've been delivered from the most destructive force in the universe. And so why walk in that? Why walk in that? And they actually had eight reasons. Let me give you another one. Finally, sin is dishonoring to the gospel. Let me tell you what it says when a person who professes to be a follower of Jesus Christ is not fighting and resisting sin and striving not to sin, but rather is walking in sin in a way that people that are outside the church know that they are. What it does is that it dishonors the gospel. What the life says is that there's no power in the good news that is Jesus. Because here's this Christian, and they don't live any different than I do. I walk in sin, I'm tracked in sin. They say they're free from sin, but they walk in it anyway. Does that make sense? My pastor had a saying, I'm going to say it to you, and this dovetails with this. Sin is dishonoring to the gospel. Fighting and resisting sin exalts the gospel. My pastor used to say to us, let's see, your walk talks and your talk walks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. You follow that? Your walk talks, and your talk walks. But your walk talks louder than your talk talks. In the Marine Corps, they used to say, talk is cheap. (laughs) Right? Fellow former Marine back there, right? Talk is cheap. And if your talk is of the gospel, (laughs) but your life is opposite to the gospel then you dishonor the gospel. Now, these are all the reasons why John instructs that we not sin if we're already Christians, okay? Seven of the reasons, or eight rather, that we fight against sin and avoid sin. And so then that raises two more questions. And so let me throw them out to you. Um, In light of this, the next question is, how do I avoid sin? How do I avoid sin? How do I do this? If I'm a Christian, how do I walk in this? And then the next question is, what if I fail? How do I avoid sin as a Christian? And what do I do if I fail? So let's take these questions one at a time. 
Uh, Question one is, how do I resist and avoid sin so as not to sin? Well, there's a very simple answer. A very simple answer. We avoid sin so as not to sin by keeping our minds set and focused on the right object. Okay? I'll tell you a funny story. I remember when we were kids. I grew up on a street with seven young men and one, one, one young lady. And we used to play tag. And we had neat backyards, big backyards, and fences that you could climb over really fast. And there were tons of trees in our backyard, and it was easy to hide and stuff like that. And I remember one time we were playing tag, and the person that was it was chasing me, right? And if you've ever played tag, you know what I'm talking about. Somebody's it, and the only way that they can escape being it is to tag somebody else and make them it, whatever it was, okay? So the person that was it discovered my hiding place, And I'm trying to run to the safe place. There was a place where you could run to, and if you reached it, even if it touched you, you didn't become it. You following me? And so I'm running for base. And I'm running for base, and I was faster than the guy that was chasing me. But there was only one problem. I didn't keep focused. And I turned around to see how close it was. And when I looked back, there was a tree this close. And my momentum took me right into it. And the person that was it didn't say, oh, are you hurt? They said, tag, you're it. Okay? Man, how do you avoid the tree? By focusing on the right object. The right object would have been the base. But I took my focus away, and I ran smack into the tree. Uh, They say that to row a straight course in a rowboat, one fixes their gaze on a solitary point on the shore. And when I was in the Boy Scouts, we learned that. And in the same way, to avoid sin, we've got to fix our gaze on a solitary point, a solitary object, and keep our gaze there. Now, what is the solitary object? Well, I want to show you some verses. Look back to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 is a good place for us to answer that question. Where should we keep our focus? Colossians 3 verse 1 says, Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, and if you're a Christian, you have been, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds... You know how to set your mind? You set your mind by making a certain object your focus, making a certain action your focus, so that you're going to be moving in that direction. Set your mind on the things above, not on things that are on earth. Verse 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's how we fight and resist sin. By setting our minds on the right object, and the right object is Christ, and where he is seated at the right hand of God, and setting our mind on the things that are not on earth, but the things that are above. 
So many times when we're struggling with a sin pattern as Christians, our focus shifts from Christ to the sin pattern. Now, that's a sure way to find yourself in the whirlpool that's going to take you down, down, down. The most important thing is to keep the mind set on Christ. That's how I resist and fight sin and not sin. Uh, Hebrews 12 is another good place to look. Take a look at Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 follows chapter 11, which is the hall of faith. And the writer starts in the first verse, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes. Another way to say setting our minds. Fixing our eyes on what? On Jesus. Why? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now look at verse 3. Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. That's how you fight sin, resist sin, not sin. Fix your eyes on Jesus as you're laying aside the sin that so easily entangles. In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number one is, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? If you don't know what the Westminster Shorter Catechism is, can't say that word. If you don't know what the Westminster Shorter Catechism is, don't worry about it. If you want to know, I'll tell you. But the first question is this, what is the chief end of man? And the response is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. You know, we've come to know Christ in order that we might enjoy God. The living God. The true God. The God of the universe. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And so when my focus is on Christ and my motive for living is to glorify God, I'm going to be empowered to fight against, to resist sin, to say no to it, to not do it, to stop doing it. And to fight and fight and fight and fight until I overcome whatever sin pattern I might be struggling with at the time. You see, to live for God's glory, as the Shorter Catechism talks about then, as Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it, is to live to do God's will. To always be asking, what does the Lord desire? What does the Lord want for me? And I'll tell you where that really gets practical. It's when I begin to ask, what does the Lord want for me in my marital relationship? What does the Lord want for me in my relationship with my wife, my relationship with my husband, if you happen to be a wife? What does the Lord want for me in my work life? What does he want for me in my school life? What does the Lord want for me in my social life? What does the word want for, Lord want for me in my public life? 
in my private life, in my secret life. Everybody has a public life. Everybody has a private life. Every detective knows everybody has a secret life. What does the Lord want for me in my private life, my public life, and my secret life? And when in all of those areas, my purpose is to glorify the Lord, I'll find that I'm fighting sin and not walking in it. When our Lord and his will is our focus, we will find we resist sin more and more. So we see then that to keep our hearts with God and to maintain assurance of our salvation, it is important that we practice confession and it is important that we resist sin so as not to sin. But now here's the next and logical question. What if I fail? What if I fail? You know you failed. I know I've failed. If you want to find out if I've failed, just ask my wife. If I want to find out if you failed and you're married, I just need to ask your spouse. Or better yet, your kids. Because they know, right? So what if I fail? What if I fail? What if I fail? Well, if and when we fail and we sin, it is of vital importance that we rest. So that's the third word. Confess, resist, and rest. What do we rest in? We rest in the work that Christ has done for us, and that is the third practice which we must walk in if we're going to keep our hearts with God and maintain assurance of salvation. Now, that's found in John chapter 2, 1b and 2. Let me read it to you. John says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and then he says... He himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. That's where the rest comes in. That's where the rest comes in. Resting in the finished work of Christ and in the ongoing work of Christ. Now, there is too much soul food for me to try to unpack those verses right now. But foundationally, what we learn from these verses is that Jesus Christ continues to work on the behalf of his children even now, even today, all the time. All the time. He saved us when he died on the cross. It was actualized in our lives when the Spirit gave us new life and we believed on Christ. But Jesus' work doesn't stop once we believe. It's ongoing. Hebrews says he lives forever to make intercession for us. That's what he's doing, making intercession for us. That's what it means that he's the advocate, you see. Um, he continues to work on our behalf today. So that if we sin after we believe, our sin doesn't destroy our relationship with God because Jesus is alive and he is our advocate. So even when we as believers sin, we're not in jeopardy. We don't lose the salvation that we have, like some groups teach. Because we are Christ, and he is ours, and he lives, and he pleads for us. So how many of you sinned this morning before you came to church? You don't need to raise your hands. <laughs> well, the reason it didn't cost you your salvation is because Jesus Christ, the righteous, is our advocate. 
Next Sunday, we'll unpack that in more detail. But we're about to take the elements of the Lord's table. And the elements of the Lord's table picture what I'm talking about. They picture the fact that Jesus shed his blood and offered his body on the cross for us. So that through faith in him, we come into covenant with God. And through his ongoing intercession, we're never put in jeopardy again. Because we are Christ. And Christ is, is ours. So let's pray. And then we're going to participate in the Lord's Supper together. So join with me. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that we could take the time to go through this short section of Scripture. And we thank you for the truths that are behind it. I want to pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ, even as I pray for my wife and myself and my sons and daughters-in-law, that you would just give us grace, knowing how destructive sin is, to not walk in it any longer, to say no to it, to not sin. But Father, when we do sin, help us keep our minds focused on Jesus Christ the righteous. He is our advocate.